Well, as some of you are coming in, I use the uh, only Ethiopian words I know, and when you said something to me, I was lost. But uh, it's delightful to, uh, to be here tonight. Uh, and I want to begin on that personal note that Judy mentioned. Uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Addis Ababa in 1964, uh, when Ted Vestal came as one of the members of the Peace Corps staff, he was associate director for Ethiopia. Uh, and over the following year, he worked very closely with us. Uh, my wife and I taught in the lab school at Sidis Kilo. Uh, the program I was teaching in was a college preparatory 12th grade year for students from all over the country who had been recruited to go into uh, the College of Education and become secondary school teachers at a time when uh, Ethiopian trained teachers were desperately needed. Uh, during that year, Ted worked very closely with us, was very supportive, uh, really valued him as a mentor, uh, and really also he certainly became a good personal friend. Uh, we haven't seen each other in some time, but this past weekend we saw a lot of one another. Uh, as we did other people we had served in the Peace Corps with in Ethiopia uh, in connection with the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Peace Corps Act by John Kennedy. Uh, and uh, it was a really a wonderful time. Uh, Peace Corps volunteers who had been in many parts of the world, but you can be, sure, can be assured that there were large numbers who have a very strong attachment to their experience in Ethiopia. Uh, and we were in all different parts of the country. So over these four days, we remembered a lot. We remembered Ethiopian friends and, and, and uh, experiences, uh, and we also ate enormous uh, amounts of injera and what? <laughs> Which, by the way, most of you can eat without it running down your arm, but I still have that problem. Uh, Ted's career has been both in government service and the university. Uh, at the heart of those roles has been his passion for cross-cultural understanding and international education. In addition to his position in uh, the Peace Corps, uh, where he served, by the way, both in Washington and in, in Ethiopia, he served as the director of university educational programs in New Delhi uh, and in uh, Japan. Uh, Ted's degrees are both in law and political science. Uh, and his university positions include roles as professor, dean, and president. For more than 30 years as a college teacher, he's taught courses that range from comparative religions to civil liberties and civil rights. But Ethiopia, I think, has always had a special place in his work and his heart. He served as consultant and international uh, election observer for the transitional government in 1992, he testified before Congress on Ethiopian affairs, and he served as an expert witness for Ethiopians and Eritreans seeking political asylum in the U.S. In 2002, he donated his considerable collection of Ethiopian materials to his home institution, Oklahoma State University. In 1999, he published Ethiopia, a post-Cold War African state. His recent book, is, on this, is the subject of his talk tonight, and the title is The Lion of Judah in the New World, Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia and the Shaping of Americans' Attitudes Toward Africa. Uh, please give Ted a warm, a very warm, Baltimore welcome.
Thank you very much, Ed. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. I, I was so pleased to see so many Ethiopians in the audience. I appreciate your coming. I hope I'm not uh, telling too much about your history, but I hope you'll enjoy the part I do tell. My appearance here tonight is uh, thanks to Judy Cooper and to uh, Otto Gabe, who's a librarian here in Baltimore also, who's the publisher of that beautiful uh, calendar, uh, the uh, Ethiopian calendar with the uh, bi biographical sketches of noted Ethiopians, which uh, is the best-looking one I have seen. Uh, I have several friends who I haven't seen in a long time that I've enjoyed being with so very much on this trip. A boyhood friend, uh, Reverend uh, Dan Gleckler, who's a Methodist minister here in town. I, I think his father may have brought me into the world. And uh, the Peace Corps volunteers, besides uh, Ed and Joe Orser, uh, were Steve Buff and Evelyn Buff, who served in Addis Ababa also, and Timmy and Betsy Baker, who served in Ethiopia. It, we gave Roman numerals to the Ethiopian training group, so Ed and Joe were Ethi-2s, Evelyn and uh, Steve were Ethi-3s, and Tim and Betsy were Ethi-4s. And just by luck, my uh, administrative duties in Addis Ababa had me working with groups Ethi 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, which I think was unique. So I, I, I know I've enjoyed this, these reunions we've been having very much, seeing so many old friends who contributed in so many ways to Ethiopia during the, the reign of Haile Selassie. I'm pleased to be back in Baltimore. I, I first came here when I was eight years old. And it, the city's changed a little bit since then, maybe for the better. But uh, it's a, a very pleasant place, and uh, the Bakers took me on a tour today where I saw sites that weren't even here 30 years ago when I visited Dan the last time here in the city. My subject is one that uh, will be familiar to many of you. In fact, I, I'm very, very fortunate to have an audience that I do not have to explain where the Horn of Africa is or where Ethiopia is or who Haile Selassie is, which these days is a little unusual because I, I find many young Americans and actually many young Ethiopians don't know too much about their former emperor. Uh, so I, I think that's a shame, but uh, we'll try to correct that. Uh, and I hope you can uh, get copies of my book. We, we didn't have many available to bring with us. I, I was limited to, the, to how much I could carry with me in my suitcase, and many of them disappeared in Washington with the Peace Corps crowd. But we, we do have a, a flyer available from uh, Gabe at the, the table in the back, which has 20% off. It was printed especially for our occasion here, so it, it has a code if you want to order online from the publisher. So let me urge you to pick one of those up if, we're, if you're unable to get a, a book. The book is available from uh, Amazon.com and also BarnesandNoble.com as well as the publisher. So I, I hope you'll be able to find it eventually. Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, was one of the iconic figures of the 20th century, epitomizing in many ways the majesty of Africa and African people in the eyes of many Americans. At least since 1930, when uh, he was coronated, taking on the throne room, uh, the throne name of Haile Selassie, the power of the Trinity, conquering line of the tribe of Judah, 
defender of the faith, instrument of the Trinity, uh, and king of kings, he was well known uh, in American society and until his overthrow by the so-called Velvet Revolution in 1974. He developed a, a strong tie to the United States, which is witnessed by the fact that he paid six state visits to America, which was a record of visiting foreign heads of state, which stands to this day. No one else in the 20th century approached that. Only Queen Elizabeth, who has been on the throne now for a long time, tied the record during the George W. Bush administration. But the, that record six state visits still stands. So he uh, early on uh, became a celebrity during the, the time of World War II, when uh, his country was invaded in 1935 by the Italian fascists, and he made the immortal speech at the League of Nations in Geneva in 1936, in which he asked the League to live up to its mandate to enforce collective security to protect small countries from large aggressors. The League, of course, did not do that, and the Emperor had to go into exile in Great Britain. But he didn't stay there long because uh, when Italy declared war on Great Britain, uh, the emperor went to the Sudan where he led British Commonwealth troops and Ethiopian patriots, guerrillas, uh, into a successful liberation campaign, which was the first Allied victory in World War II at a time when the Allies needed a victory. This was in 1941. So, uh, he was famous during the war. I remember seeing um, newsreels, propaganda films in World War II, which almost always would include a shot of the emperor at Geneva. So those of us my age who grew up during World War II recall him very vividly, that image of the emperor. And that image, by the way, was what most Americans thought of when they heard the term Ethiopia up until 1984, when starving children in the famine became much more the, the picture in the head Americans had when they heard the term Ethiopia. He uh, was uh, well known uh, in the uh, diplomatic circles because of his, his stern gravitas and uh, penetrating eyes. I, I've always been fascinated by the fact that his eyes seemed to um, bore into you. When he was in a room, everybody in the room was sure he was looking at them. The only other eyes like that I've ever encountered were those of Maria Callas, who uh, on the stage had that same magnetic effect, but it was a very unusual characteristic of the emperor. We uh, became allies of the United States and Ethiopia during the Cold War, and by that time the United States had discovered that uh, an Italian naval radio station, Radio Marina, uh, up in near Asmara, had amazing abilities in terms of being able to listen in on broadcast, radio broadcasts from other uh, parts of the world. So apparently very clear AM radio broadcasts could be received from as far away as Brazil, Finland, and Australia. So the U.S. said this would be a very good place for us to have a listening post. And uh, they were willing to pay a high rent for it. The emperor was willing to be landlord. And the rent was uh, the arming and uh, training of the, the finest military in sub-Saharan Africa. They 
had an army of 40,000 equipped with very modern equipment. So that, that was the arrangement that led to bilateral treaties and uh, both uh, military and economic development type uh, programs. The United States uh, had uh, an early uh, connection to Ethiopia through what was known as the Point Four program. President Harry Truman, in his uh, inaugural address, had a, a speech with at least four points in it, and the fourth point was to talk about Americans helping developing countries with technological aid. And uh, this had uh, inspired Haile Selassie to contact the president of what was then Oklahoma A&M College, an agricultural and mechanical college, to visit him in uh, Addis Ababa and talk about setting up a land-grant model American agricultural college or university in Ethiopia. And this led to the, the founding, ultimately, of Alamaya College. This president from um, Oklahoma A&M, Henry Bennett, became then the first director of Point Four. And one of the very first contracts was between Ethiopia and Oklahoma A&M setting up Alamaya College. And because there were no students trained to attend an agricultural college, they had to set up an agricultural high school in Jima. And uh, after a couple of years, they had graduated some classes there, and the students went on to Alamaya. I've met many members of those initial uh, graduating classes. They're outstanding scientists. They've had wonderful careers in various parts of the world and different organizations in, in the academy and in science and in research. So this was one of the great success stories of U.S.-Ethiopian ties and relationships. In the 1960s, the emperor was very receptive to the idea of having Peace Corps teachers come in, and over time we had more than 2,000 Americans serve in Ethiopia as Peace Corps volunteers. In the early days, especially as teachers, and you meet uh, people of a certain age in Ethiopia, and almost every one of them speaks very good English and writes good English with an American accent. They had high school teachers from the United States who, who were these Peace Corps teachers like the people who are with us tonight. But that made a great difference, which I observed uh, coming back to Ethiopia after many years. I, I was not back there in the uh, years after Haile Selassie's fall, but I, I was there in the early years of the transitional government. And I could hear and see the difference in the English of the Ethiopians speaking and writing at that time. The, the ones who had had Peace Corps teachers were superior to those who came later, who had teachers from other, other places. Or at least to an American ear, it sounded that way. So uh, we've had uh, those close ties. Then we had the military ties, obviously, and, and there were also missionaries coming from the United States. So our two countries have enjoyed uh, long uh, times together. The uh, emperor became the champion of collective security after uh, the liberation of his country, and he put his troops where his rhetoric was, sending uh, Ethiopian forces to fight alongside United Nations troops in Korea in the 1950s and in the Congo in uh, the 1960s, and the, the United States uh, became the very close ally because of the military ties during the Cold War. The uh, emperor came on his first state visit in 1954 
uh, to go back a step, he had met President Franklin Roosevelt at Bitter Lake in Egypt during World War II. President Roosevelt was coming home from the Alta Conference and uh, was on a U.S. cruiser, which uh, docked in Egypt, and uh, the uh, president saw three kings, including Haile Selassie, so he talked about meeting the three kings of, from afar on the uh, deck. And uh, that seemed to whet an interest in the emperor in coming to the United States. Roosevelt said, you must come and visit sometime, and he longed to do that, but it wasn't practical for him to leave until uh, 19, the 1950s when he had his... Uh, boundaries restored to the, the, the pre-war Ethiopian boundary situation and felt confident enough to leave Ethiopia on this uh, tour of the country. President Eisenhower, uh, he had admired in World War II for his generalship, and uh, the uh, president and uh, the emperor had a, a very good personal relationship meeting uh, at the White House. Princess Sebla and... Uh, the, the uh, emperor's son, Sali Selassie, accompanied him on that trip, and there are wonderful pictures we'll have a look at in a moment of that first visit. The emperor stayed, he and his party stayed overnight in the White House. So he was the first African head of state to spend the night in the White House. He went to New York City, where he was the first African head of state to receive a ticker tape parade. And not only that, a few years later, he had a second ticker tape parade, which is almost unheard of. Uh, only a very few people, maybe half a dozen, uh, have had two ticker tape parades. Such people such as de Gaulle and Eisenhower, aviators like um, Earhart and uh, Wiley Post, but uh, very few heads of state have been so honored. If you go to three ticker tape parades or more, you're talking about the New York Yankees or sports teams. So that's, that's an honor reserved for multi-groups. So that, that was a, a very unusual occurrence. The party, the royal party, stayed at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, which was mentioned in an episode of Mad Men, the um, television drama. Did any of you catch that? I, I, that caught my ear, you know. They, they were talking about civil rights in the uh, 1960s, and uh, one of the characters said, well, well, what is it the African-Americans want? And the, the other character said, they want to be able to stay in the Waldorf Astoria like Haile Selassie did. I, I started to write the, editor, the, the writer and say, hey, I, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so that, that was very special. Uh, the emperor went to a Yankee baseball game where he donned a, a fielder's uh, glove and waved to a cheering crowd. 40,000 people cheered for him when he waved his glove in the air. He, he was very diplomatic when uh, people asked him which team he was rooting for. It, it was the Yankees against the Senators, so the Washington against New York. And he, he said he thought both sides played their best to try to win. <laughs> then uh, he came back in 1963 to visit with uh, John F. Kennedy. Uh, the chapter in my book is called The Lion of Judah at Camelot. He was charmed by Jackie Kennedy, who spoke fluent French, and the emperor preferred to speak in French rather than English, so she met his train. In fact, the emperor had very dynamic entrances. This was something to be noted about him. On his first trip, he arrived in the United States on the SS United States, which was the largest and fastest sailing ship at that time, the liner, 
And uh, I think they made the crossing in four and a half days or five days, something like that. I, I saw that ship at sea in the 1950s. I was in a student ship, which was a converted troop ship, and suddenly this beautiful vision went roaring past us, and it was the, uh, U- the United States going by a full steam ahead. It surpassed the speed record of the Queen Mary, and, and as it went by, the American captain signaled his British counterpart and said, uh, sorry, old girl. And the, the British captain uh, wired back and said, your girls are faster than our girls. So that, that was a record there. The first interview with the emperor was from a tugboat, which pulled up alongside the United States, and uh, a CBS reporter with a Boone microphone reached it over and said, Haile Selassie, what do you think of the skyline? And that this was all carried live on television. For some reason, Walter Cronkite was the, a young reporter doing the uh, uh, integration work back in the studio. So the emperor had a connection to some important media figures early on when he came over. Up in the 63 visit, the party arrived at Union Station in Washington, D.C., with trumpet fanfares and uh, the diplomatic corps and all the American top brass uh, military and civilian lined up. The emperor made his way, shaking hands down the, the line. And then he and uh, President Kennedy rode in an open limousine down Pennsylvania Avenue. I was working at Peace Corps Washington at that time, and I uh, went outside to see if I could see them, and they, they drove by just as I got there. So I joined the crowd cheering him. In fact, I, I'm, I'm as close to those of you on the back row as I was to Haile Selassie and Kennedy in an open car as they drove by. So that was a wonderful time. I, I don't remember any of the other heads of state's visits receiving as much publicity in the Washington and New York press as that one did that year. Uh, the emperor carried a um, heavy wreath, silver wreath, made out of Ethiopian coins all the way up the steps. Bear in mind, he, he's not a young man anymore. He, he's getting along in years. He carried this very heavy wreath by himself all the way up the stairs of the Lincoln Memorial and placed it in front of the statue of Lincoln. And uh, his translator translated all of Lincoln's sayings that are around the inside of the monument. So uh, the emperor found that very satisfying to... Um, have that happen. He gave a beautiful leopard skin coat to Jackie Kennedy, of uh, which she donned. It, this, this was in um, early October, and it was a day sort of like today on the warm side. The president came out of the Oval Office and couldn't figure out why his wife was wearing a coat on a day like that. And then he came over and saw what was happening. He gave uh, a shama, the Ethiopian dress, to little Caroline Kennedy, and a figure, a little soldier-like figure of an Ethiopian warrior to little John John, who shows up in the uh, photographs. The the presidential libraries, by the way, were the source of many of my photographs. They they have wonderful collections in uh, all of the presidential libraries. Uh, Haile Selassie invited uh, John Kennedy to come to Ethiopia, and the president said he would like to. He would see if he could work it into his schedule. They seem to have had a, a especially uh, good good chemistry. They, they got along together. And the um, emperor uh, had a, a, a short friendship with the president because he was assassinated just a little over a month later. And uh, 
Eileen Selassie came back to Washington for the funeral. He, he was by far the most colorful figure in that funeral cortege. You, you remember the photographs. For some reason, he was all, almost always, besides de Gaulle, who was about twice as high as Haile Selassie was, uh, but uh, he was the only African head of state to take the time and the money to come to the president's funeral. So uh, many, many people were quite uh, moved by that gesture. After the funeral, he was one of three heads of state who had a private audience with Jacqueline Kennedy, who apparently became uh, a good personal friend of the, the emperors. They, they continued to stay in contact for some years thereafter. The, the third state visit was during the Johnson administration, and it was in the winter. The, the other state visits had been in the, the spring or late autumn when the weather was still nice, but he chose a February to come into uh, Washington, D.C., which, as you know, is not the best time to visit. So this was called the winter of discontent because um, Lyndon Johnson was very concerned with the war in Vietnam, and Haile Selassie was facing con more open uh, the dissidents and opposition back home. Students were beginning to demonstrate, and uh, both men were not all that happy with their home rule situation at that time. Uh, during that visit, he had a memorable experience uh, in that the Chief Justice Earl Warren had a lunch in honor of the emperor at the Supreme Court building which is very rare. You know, they occasionally have dinners for visiting heads of state, but to have a visiting head of state actually honored with a luncheon in the Supreme Court building was, that may be a first and only, I don't know. There have been uh, dinners for other heads of state, but that was a distinct honor at that time. In 1969, Richard Nixon made the point to invite Haile Selassie as the first African leader to visit him at the White House. It, I might uh, mention that uh, the two men had met uh, during the first visit of uh, Haile Selassie to the United States. The plane he was on had, uh, from New York had landed at uh, Andrews Air Force Base, and President Eisenhower was not there to greet Haile Selassie, but Vice President Richard Nixon was. The emperor said, where is Eisenhower? And the State Department people had to explain that uh, protocol was that the president would greet people at the White House, so he would send the Secretary of State or the Vice President out to meet them. So I'm not sure they got off to a good good start, but they, they knew each other for a long time. Nixon actually visited Ethiopia twice while he was Vice President and uh, came back uh, as a private citizen before he ran for the presidency in 1968. So. Uh, they had this long uh, relationship together. Uh, all of the, these visits uh, were brought about because the emperor was concerned with Somalia being armed by the Soviet Union and Soviet bloc countries. So he always wanted more and better arms from the United States, which we usually gave him, uh, although not as many nor as fast as the emperor would have liked. So we had this long amiable relationship, but there was always tension in it because the emperor wanted more, and uh, we, we, because of our governing setup, we couldn't always supply things as fast or uh, in the quantity that he wanted. So he came back uh, for his fifth state visit in 1970, which was the 25th anniversary of the founding of the United Nations, and he uh, was one of 
a large number of heads of state who, who uh, spoke before the uh, United Nations. He was, by the way, the only head of state to speak before both the League of Nations and the United Nations. So that this, again, was a dis distinction. He was uh, one of the guests at the White House dinner that the Nixons held, which set a record for the number of foreign heads of state in attendance. And being the senior uh, head of state, he had been in office on the throne longer than anyone else, he responded to President Nixon's toast very eloquently. Then in 1973, he came for his last state visit, again uh, bringing a, a large shopping list of military hardware at great cost. And by that time, satellite communication uh, programs had made Cagnew Station somewhat obsolete. We didn't need that listening post as much as we had before, plus we had a new base out in the Indian Ocean called Diego Garcia. So the emperor had lost his trump card in dealing and bargaining with the United States. And as a result, uh, President Nixon said, we'll, we'll give you loans, but we won't give you grants for your military request. So in the eyes of many, uh, the emperor returned to Ethiopia empty-handed from that six-state visit. And many people are quite sure that helped contribute to his downfall the following year in the so-called Velvet Revolution. So... Uh, those were the six state visits, all of them very interesting stories in themselves. In, in telling these stories, I'm weaving in uh, the foreign policy of the two countries towards each other. So I hope you'll find that enlightening to see how our relationships developed over the uh, rather long period of time involved in Haile Selassie's reign and visits to the United States. So when I was looking at... Uh, the Haile Selassie story, I was thinking it's perhaps an appropriate time to have this book published because we now have an African-American president and Africa is more and more in the news. So perhaps it's appropriate to look at the background and the subconscious ideas created by the emperor's visits in American memory, ideas that are still... Uh, important in Americans' thinking. We had uh, a whole series of uh, unconscious or implicit biases affecting the way we affect uh, with the way we uh, evaluate candidates. And when the the son of a uh, Kenyan immigrant decided to run for the presidency, remembrance of Haile Selassie was part of the unconscious. Uh, biases uh, which were bringing people to affirmative thinking about uh, Africa and people of African descent. So I, I think the images of Haile Selassie representing the best from Africa were stored in American memory and had a profound impact on Americans' thinking. And that image is still developing at the present time. Uh, let me show you a few photos. Uh, so nice to have an audience that has probably seen all this before, but it, I'll, I'll go very quickly. Imagine the delight in an American trying to write about the geography of uh, Ethiopia with, with the, the great varied landscapes from Mount Rasdashan. There we go. This is the book, Buy Early and Often, okay? 
And here's Ethiopia and the Horn. You can see Addis Ababa, the capital city in the middle of the country there. And see how narrow the, how narrow the uh, water is between the two uh, land masses in Western Asia and Africa. There's the Great Rift Valley that separates the two mountain mastiffs of Ethiopia. There's an eastern uh, mastiff and a western mastiff. Here's a NASA view of uh, that part of the world. You can see the Rift Valley cutting through, mighty geographical figure. Here are some just random shots of the Ethiopian highlands. You know, Americans think of Ethiopia either being desert or jungle. It's neither, but it's, uh, quite a beautiful country with mountains. This is near the Donico Depression, one of the lowest and hottest places. Hotter than Baltimore there, even. <laughs> places on Earth. And uh, this is typical mountain scenery. Let's see. This is the area around uh, Rosh Tashan, the highest mountain, which is higher than any peak in the 48 American states at just under 15,000 feet. The Ethiopians in the audience, I'm sure, are very familiar with these. Here's the Blue Nile Gorge, the great uh, river on its way to Egypt, cutting through the countryside. Ethiopia, when we arrived in 1964, Addis Ababa smelled like Northern California. There were so many eucalyptus trees. It was a delight to uh, find the, the purple mountains and the uh, nice aroma of eucalyptus. Here's the Blue Nile Falls, the Tissasset Falls, the Falls of Mist, which is one of the beautiful tourist attractions. Different pictures of it. And Lake Tana nearby. This is this is the Mount Rastashan area. You see that that tall one on the left in the background is probably it, like uh, Mount Rastashan. It's like uh, Everest. You can't see it very well as a tourist because it's so enclosed by other mountains. Here's an acacia tree, a sort of a typical scene out in the bush in uh, Ethiopia. And agriculture still carried on very much by two oxen plow teams. And threshing is done the traditional way. These are very familiar scenes to the Peace Corps people here. We used to see this all around us when we traveled out into the countryside. Those are tukels, the little homes of uh, Ethiopian peasants, which could be quite comfortable. I, I've slept in many. Here was a market. Uh, this particular one is at uh, Jinka, but always a very colorful gathering of people selling all sorts of interesting wares. Now you see an awful lot of chat, which is a narcotic leaf that is chewed quite often. This, this is the Marcada in Addis Ababa, which is called the world's largest outdoor market, and it is a huge thing. They say you can buy anything there if you have enough money. And here's market in full swing. And it was great fun dodging donkeys when you're on the highway or on the roads of Addis Ababa. 
I, I never had any accidents except one time a man running alongside the road ran into my Land Rover. I still don't know how he did that. I was passing him and I was by him. He suddenly turned and ran into my car, got up and kept running. <laughs> Here's a train, an Italian legacy. That was left up in Asmara, which was an Italian colony for much longer than their occupation of Ethiopia. Here were the garbage collectors of Addis Ababa during my day. The hyenas, you could hear them at night. And jaw, great sound. Beautiful animals. And these are Ethiopian wolves. Uh, they look like foxes, don't they? But they're actually wolves. And they're found up in the Simeon area, up in the mountains. That one seems bored on the right side there. And the ibex. Ethiopia has much game that has not been culled over by that many hunters, so it's still a place where there's great tourist opportunity. That's the Peace Corps staff. <laughs> they were almost always around whenever you had a picnic. It, last time I was in Ethiopia in 2004, I was out in the area around the Agaden, and uh, there were wild baboons everywhere. I, I thought, well, I've got to get a picture of one of these. So I, I got ready to take the picture, and the, the baboon mooned me just as I snapped it. Also nearby were wild camels running around. So you still see these out in the eastern part of Ethiopia. And hippos in, in the lakes all over. I had a, a French charter a plane pilot who used to take me on trips down in the south to visit volunteers in smaller towns and he would fly over a pond full of hippos and in his delightful French way he would say there's a big one, there's a little one describing them very vividly <laughs> and here is uh, getting to the history of the country here's one of the mysterious stels or plural stelli uh, which were engineering and uh, architectural feats of wonder I, I hope people can begin to understand what they're all about. I think it's still veiled in mystery. The Italians took one of these to Rome with them, where it sat many years until Richard Pankhurst and others made a concerted effort to get it back home. The Queen of Sheba was from Aksum. I've seen her bath there. And she, she went to visit King Solomon uh, in a, sto a story that's actually related in the Bible, but it's a very important part of the Ethiopian tradition. And one of the great tourist artifacts is the Sheba Scroll, which tells, tells the story of the Queen of Sheba meeting with Solomon the Wise. Great story in itself. Young Menelik, by the way, brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Aksum, so George Lucas got that story all wrong. And uh, it's an important part of the Ethiopian religion. That religion permeates the society. They have churches and priests. You see them all over the country in uh, literally every community. Those handsome Ethiopian crosses. And much of the artwork of Ethiopia, the early artwork, was related to religion. Processional crosses and hand crosses. This is at Lalibela, the wonderful uh, city of churches carved out of mountains. There are 11 magnificent churches there. There's a brand new book on Lollibella that many of you will be interested in knowing about. It's by uh, Philipson, the head of uh, archaeology at uh, Cambridge University. He'd done a lot of work at Oxum, and then he went to 
Lolly Bella and his book is really a definitive study, beautiful photographs and diagrams of the churches of, of Lolly Bella. Those, those churches are still used for service today, so you know they're not historical museums. They, they are actually living churches. This is St. George, the most famous one in the shape of a cross. And that even the decoration within the church is carved out of the mountainside. Fantastic work. It, it helped. Men work 12 hours a day, but angels work the other 12 hours. So that's why they were able to finish ahead of schedule. And here was a, actually a church service in Lalibela. Notice the beautiful countryside behind it. This is a famous uh, ceiling of a church in uh, Gondor, which I enjoyed visiting many times. You see this on Ethiopian uh, china and pottery ware and what have you. It's a very famous design. And uh, the, the religious processions, celebrations, are great colorful affairs, very, very joyful occasions. This is a holiday called Timkit, which has the most beautiful umbrellas of all. And another architectural city of interest is Gondor, which has castles that looks more like Camelot than those in Great Britain. Very well preserved. Gondor was one of my favorite cities, you might conclude. And here was the emperor at the League of Nations at an earlier time. There he was in his coronation picture. 1930, National Geographic devoted a whole issue of colored photographs to the Emperor's Coronation and about Ethiopia. It's a real collector's item. If you get a chance to see it, it's a beautiful work. There he is with uh, Empress Menon, his wife, at the Coronation. The uh, attendees sat through about an hour and a half uh, service in Giz, which none of them understood. But uh, that was part of the uh, service going on. In uh, the 1930s, Haile Selassie and Joe Lewis, the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, were probably the two best-known black men in America, so they, they were on the cover of Vanity Fair. <laughs> Looks like they made Haile Selassie a little taller than he really was. Here's the Ethiopian army in 1935 going out to face the Italians. Not very good footwear. And they were opposed by uh, modern-equipped Italian forces who used poison gas, airplanes, and tanks in uh, conquering the country. And here is that famous speech before the League of Nations. That, that's the image in the head of people my age and older who can remember Haile Selassie. There he was during exile. He uh, was in a taxi accident and broke his knee on the way to the BBC radio station. He said, no, I'm giving a Christmas message to the Americans. So he went over with his hurt knee and gave this message, which was in that picture. Here he is at Bitter Lake with President Roosevelt. Roosevelt died just a few months later, by the way. You can see he looks pretty haggard. I think Roosevelt told one of his famous jokes about them. Mm -hmm. 
And here was the Kagnu Battalion. That, those were the Ethiopian troops who went to fight in Korea. Very uh, brave soldiers. That one of the chapters in the American book called Porkchop Hill is about the Ethiopian army and the bravery in uh, the Korean War. If you haven't read that, have a look at it. It's very fascinating. This is Addis Ababa, the capital city. You can see it's a mixture of modern buildings and the old uh, churches and cathedrals. And here is Africa Hall, which was uh, built during Haile Selassie's reign. It, it became the headquarters for the United Nations economic program in Africa. I've been to conferences there, and they, they've always had simultaneous translation in several languages. I always wondered what I sounded like in Arabic, but I never got to hear what the translation was. This is Afewerk Tekle, who was uh, one of the great artists of Ethiopia. He did the stained glass windows in the uh, Africa Hall. He just had, by the way, a um, showing of, of his artwork in Houston, Texas. The same fellow that managed bringing Lucy uh, to the United States brought Afewerk Tekle with a show of his art at a Houston museum. Let me go back here. This is... Um, the emperor with Henry Bennett, the president of Oklahoma A&M, uh, they, they met together and apparently had very good uh, chemistry. And as a result, uh, President Truman asked Bennett to stop at the White House on the way home, and he told about his uh, conversations with Haile Selassie, and that became the basis of the point for speech. He, he was... Truman was so impressed with what had gone on in talking about setting up a land-grant college in Ethiopia that that opened up the development program. So the Ethiopian experience of almost all the Americans here who served there can be given to Henry Bennett for making that trip and uh, getting to know Haile Selassie so well. The little dog was one of many Lulus. I, for some reason, the emperor named all his dogs Lulu, whether they were male or female. And a young male Lulu is one of the characters in my book. I think you'll enjoy reading about his escapades. Here is Cagnu Station, the listening post up near Asmara. There was the entrance to it, U.S. Army Cagnu Station. And this was what the troops looked like when the emperor came to see them. He liked to go in and shop at the um, PX and buy the latest electronic gadgets. He was fascinated with gadgets, so he was getting the latest tape recorders and those kinds of things. Here he is on the first state visit in 1954. You see Richard Nixon behind him. They're, they're fresh off the plane at Andrews Air Force Base reviewing the troops. And I, I started to put the caption down there, where is Eisenhower? And here he was, he was at the White House. So there he is greeting the emperor uh, at the White House. When That's Mamie Eisenhower. Dwight's uh, wife. And here was the royal party, Princess Sebla, Sali Selassie. The Sebla was a granddaughter of the emperor, and Sali Selassie was the youngest son. And uh, Sali Selassie's son is the current head of the Ethiopian Crown Council. He lives in the Washington, D.C. area. Wonderful man. He came to hear my talk last night, so I was very pleased that he and his wife came over. Here was a gift from the um, emperor. Let's see, this was from the... Um, Eisenhower's to the emperor, it's Stuban glass. And that was the first time an American president had given a foreign head of state a Steuben glass gift. And it became the standard thereafter. All the presidents gave visiting heads of state Steuben glass. 
That, that was at the conclusion of their meetings. The Library of Congress in 1954, during that visit, for the first time had a display of Ethiopian books and artifacts. And the emperor went over, and I guess he was a speed reader, but he went through that big book very quickly and uh, moved on to other displays. This is typical of the kinds of uh, gifts he gave to cities and uh, governments throughout the United States, the, the cross elephant tusk. This one was given to Washington, D.C. during that original visit. They brought it out sometime fairly recently for a show, and uh, it's still spectacular. He went to Hyde Park and met uh, Franklin Roosevelt's widow, Eleanor Roosevelt, who took him on a tour of the uh, area there, the home of the uh, president. And he went to Minnesota. The gentleman on the, the left is uh, Ambassador Jacobson, who was a Lutheran minister from Minnesota, and he insisted the emperor come and spend time in Minnesota, so they took him out to a, a farm where the royal party would serve lemonade and crisp cookies. Then they took him to a spam factory. This is in Seattle at the uh, Boeing plant. They were making uh, large jets for the first time that were going to the military service. He, he visited the naval base. Is it Remington Head that's near Seattle? Yeah, this was the naval base there. And this was his means of transportation. Transworld Airlines was the big brother of Ethiopian Airlines. They had helped set that airline up in the 1940s. And here was his arrival at that mighty airport, Stillwater, Oklahoma International Airport. He, he had gone to Oklahoma to personally thank Oklahoma A&M for founding Alamaya College. So he'd been to all the great tourist places. He was on a 7,000-mile tour of the United States, hitting all the uh, tourist places. But he went out of his way to go to um, Stillwater. That was the president of uh, Oklahoma A&M at the time, Dr. Wilhelm, with the presidential smile. Oh, there's an interesting story about... Uh, the emperor's arrival, you can see the Ethiopian flag to the right there of the photograph. Uh, the emperor refused to get off the plane after it landed. The Oklahoma A&M band was out. It was kind of a hot day. And the Oklahoma A&M band played and played and played, and no emperor came down. And finally, someone on board the plane had uh, radioed the control tower and said, the Ethiopian flag on the pole over there is upside down. So... They, they corrected the mistake, and the emperor came off and gave a snappy salute, and they went on with the program. This is the only known picture of the emperor with his hand in his pocket. That was at the Stillwater Airport. He was such a dignified man. He always had that big swagger stick with him. But I've never seen another picture when he looked so informal. There they got the flag right. Too bad it's not in color. All the pictures of the Eisenhower years were in black and white still, so they hadn't gotten colored uh, photography perfected very much at that time. The emperor wanted to meet an Indian, so Oklahoma A&M brought out a, a genuine Pawnee chief who gave the emperor a war bonnet and gave him an in Indian name, and the emperor was very pleased. This, this particular Indian chief had studied art at uh, Oxford, so... He and Sally Selassie, who had studied at Oxford, too, hit it off and became very good friends. That's the ambassador. The, the Lutheran minister is immediately behind the emperor. He looks like a member of the mafia. 
Mrs. Endelkatu, uh, who was to be prime minister later on, he was an Oxford-educated Ethiopian who spoke excellent English. He was the translator for many of the early visits by Haile Selassie. And here they, they were in a procession of convertibles. Unfortunately, the convertibles had been sitting out in the hot Oklahoma sun for about an hour and a half before they got in the car, so they had hot seats all the way into town. And that's Oklahoma A&M's idea of what a throne should look like. So they, they got a big chair and uh, put the emperor in it where he could receive people. That, that's the governor of the state on his right. And here was a uh, plaque that was uh, presented by Oklahoma A&M to the emperor. It was taken out to Alamaya and uh, put in the administration building's cornerstone. And here was a um, certificate from Oklahoma to the emperor expressing appreciation for all he had done for our two countries. Uh, when I went out in 2004 to Alamaya's 50th anniversary celebration, I had heard this plaque had been destroyed by Cuban troops during the Somali Wars, but it turned out not to be the case. It's still there and intact, so I was very pleased to see it, ending one of the myths that came out of that that period. The emperor, by the way, was making um, Americans members of the Order of the, the Star of Sheba and such uh, titles which they treasured. Richard Nixon, even though he got many awards from many people, always said he had received an award from Haile Selassie. This is the Alamaya campus, uh, which has expanded. They, they had maybe 60 students when this photograph was taken. They have over 10,000 now. Another success story in terms of longevity. And there's always a rainbow. The, uh, the lake there at Alamaya, unfortunately, has dried up. Too many people are trying to use the water system. So that beautiful lake is now dry, which is tragic. And here was the emperor at one of the graduation ceremonies. He, he was himself the minister for education. He took a very strong, uh, a strong um, leadership in education. Oops. This was uh, one of the graduates of, of, oh, what's the first name? Adirfus is his second name. He, he lives in Washington, D.C. now. Uh, he was a graduate of Alamaya and had the largest commercial farm in Ethiopia until the Derg took it away from him. So it, it, he's a distinguished uh, Ethiopian who came to the United States and has done very well here also. This was the emperor's bodyguard, which uh, attempted a coup against the emperor in 1960, which was put down. It was an unsuccessful coup, but they were, they were a handsome-looking group of people, weren't they, those uniforms? Let's see, let me go back to the... Um, the uh, bodyguard had these beautiful horses, which they felt didn't get enough exercise when we were living in Athens' bubble, so they asked the... Uh, foreign community in Addis who liked to ride horses if they would like to ride with them on their weekend rides up into the hills. And imagine how hard it was to get me to go. I said, yes, yes. So they put me on this beautiful horse named Abai, which is the, the Blue Nile in uh, Amharic, and we went riding up into the hills. Addis Ababa is at its lowest point, probably 8,500 feet high, so we were up maybe 10,5 or something like that. And one of the bodyguard members was speaking in Amharic, and he said, um, 
I, I used to run up here every morning. And I, I, I turned to him and said, you mean you used to ride up here every morning? He said, no, I used to run up here. It was a Bubba Bakila, the great marathon <laughs> champion. When we got to the end of the ride, we had a volleyball game, and he was the worst volleyball player in the group, world's finest runner. I, I was jogging in those days around as This was before they had invented running shoes even. And the little children who see me going by, you know, Bubba Bakila, Bubba Bakila. I said, I wish. <laughs> this is the emperor at uh, Cagnew Station, always with an entourage. Lots of pomp and circumstance. And here he was with the gentleman who was ambassador to Ethiopia during the time all of us were there, the, the Peace Corps people who are here tonight, Ed Corey, who was... Uh, an editor of Look Magazine before John Kennedy appointed him to be ambassador. And he was, um, in my books, one of the finest ambassadors we've ever had anywhere. Very articulate and uh, uh, could explain difficult things in excellent language. Obviously, he was a very good writer. In doing my research, I was reading the cables from Addis Ababa, from the embassy, and it was as though suddenly Ernest Hemingway was writing the cables. You know, it, before that, it had been some fourth grade English teacher, but uh, suddenly Ernest Hemingway is writing these wonderful cables, some of which I quote in the, uh, the book. This picture was taken by a Peace Corps volunteer, by the way, Hoyt Smith, who was an Ethy one who extended to be an Ethy two, who is a very fine professional photographer and artist now. This was taken at a, a reception for the, the volunteers. The, the emperor frequently would have the American community, and especially the Peace Corps people, over for a Christmas reception. And this brought about uh, my favorite trivial pursuits question. What was the occasion when Emperor Haile Selassie had the most pained expression on his face? And the answer is when he heard the American community trying to sing Silent Night in Amharic. <laughs> so that was a good photo. I, I wanted to use this one on the cover of my book. It's another picture by Hoyt Smith. But... Uh, the editors found a, a, that very fine picture of Haile Selassie in the ticker tape parade, so that, that was more to the point. This, this, I think, is an excellent portrait of the emperor. This is Hoyt Smith talking to the emperor. He had done a, a portrait of Haile Selassie, and the emperor was admiring that. The, the gentleman uh, on the left side with his back partially to us is Harris Wofford, who was the first director of the Peace Corps. We've been with him this past weekend, and... Um, the tall gentleman behind him is Sheldon Vance, who was the charge at the time of this particular reception. He was later ambassador to Chad, was career uh, foreign service officer. This is the Kennedy visit. Now, notice the color in the photographs now. This is at Union Station, and look at that uh, beautiful bouquet. And there's the uh, limousine. I, I was standing right here. <laughs> Beautiful car going by. And here's the leopard skin coat. And you can see John John, John may have the uh, little soldier in his hand. I'm not sure about that. Haile Selassie's there with him. That, that's Soapy Williams, Men and Williams, um, behind Mrs. Kennedy. He was Assistant Secretary of State for Africa. Uh, governor of Michigan. This was a gift of Haile Selassie to the Kennedys, a silver line of Judah. Isn't that a beauty? I always thought that was one of the, the finest gifts any head of state gave an American president. And Kennedy, recall, enjoyed a rocking chair because of his 
back condition, so he was in his rocking chair when he was having his formal meetings with the emperor. That's in the Oval Office, of course. Then this is the uh, state dinner. Where is Jacqueline Kennedy? She had just recovered from having had a miscarriage, and uh, the president's mother, Rose Kennedy, substituted for her at that uh, state dinner. Jacqueline Kennedy, it was reported, had gone off to Greece on the private party, for a private party, where apparently she spent time on the yacht of Onassis. So I don't know if that was the beginning of something or, or whether they just got acquainted at that time. This is Ed Corey with his back to us, the, the bald head front and center, and uh, one, another princess, that's Princess Ruth, uh, one of the emperor's granddaughters. And here was the emperor with um, the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, Uthant. The emperor gave a, a talk during that first visit in 1954 at the United Nations, and uh, it was a very poignant moment. The, the, the New York Times said there wasn't a dry eye in the house. The, they were remembering his appearance before the, the league earlier. So that was a, a special occasion when he went to the speak at the United Nations. He was a strong supporter of the United Nations and collective security. Here was the funeral. Uh, notice the emperor with that colorful uniform at the very front. De Gaulle is to his left. Schroeder, the um, German chancellor, is right is immediately behind the emperor. Over on the, the right side is um, the Queen of the Netherlands, and the gentleman in the uniform on the far right is the King of the Belgians. And when I was looking at this photograph, I thought that man on the back looks familiar. Anybody recognize him? John Kenneth Galbraith, the uh, economist who had been Kennedy's ambassador to India. And it, I just happened to look up and see him one time when I was looking at the photograph. So I, I'm sure he doesn't know he's in there. Uh, when the procession began, Haile Selassie said something like, uh, the greatest legacy of John F. Kennedy in the developing world is the Peace Corps. And then all the other Africans in the procession seemed to have a shouting match to see who could say amen the loudest to that as they proceeded down the way. This was at Arlington, of course, right in front of the Lee Mansion. We had a memorial service for Peace Corps volunteers there on Sunday. Uh, 200, how many? Some 200 have Peace Corps volunteers have died while serving as Peace Corps volunteers overseas. So it, it's a, a, a wonderful organization in terms of giving. And here was the emperor who was uh, titular head of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. While we were in uh, Addis, Queen Elizabeth and uh, Prince Philip came to visit they came in from Boley Airport in a golden chariot. The, one of the Peace Corps doctors, Fuller Torrey, who's a famous uh, psychiatrist in Washington, D.C. now, was standing beside me as the emperor came by. Uh, Fuller had done his medical training at McGill in Quebec. And you'll recall at that time there was a, a free Quebec movement. So as the, the royal coach went by, the queen was smiling and waving, and Fuller Torrey says, Quebec Libre. And the smile faded for just a moment. I said, surely not in Addis Ababa. 
Uh, but uh, that was a very memorable visit. And uh, he met with Billy Graham. He, he had an amazing array of uh, admirers and public figures he met with. I actually met an English-speaking geisha in Osaka who said she had entertained Haile Selassie on one of his visits to Japan. An English-speaking geisha is difficult to find, but I asked her what her specialty was. She said singing, so she had sung for the emperor when he was visiting Osaka. Here's the Johnson administration, a snappy salute for the emperor, Lyndon Johnson towering above him, and there's Earl Warren on the right, the Chief Justice of the United States. This bald head just over the Marine's shoulder is Hubert Humphrey, who was Vice President at that time. Here was the exchange of gifts. They, they traditionally go into what's called the Gold Room up on the second floor of the residence area. Uh, this gentleman here, correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen, is that uh, Steve Gillespie, the Peace Corps volunteer? This was an EC3 fellow who uh, had the best Amharic score. The Foreign Service Institute tested him at S5, which means he could translate in a technical conference. And he followed the royal party all around uh, during their visit in 1967, translating. President Johnson took him aside and said, Boy, I want you to translate every word I say to the emperor. You understand? <laughs> Luckily, uh, Manasseh Haile was nearby, so he filled in for Steve. And... Uh, Translations were made. <laughs> and uh, Lady Bird Johnson said it was always daunting to go down those steps in high heels. They'd come down from the upstairs with the Hail to the Chief playing and uh, proceed on to the formal dining room. Earl Warren again up at the top. And the, the Emperor had an eye for women. And here's uh, Lady Bird Johnson on one side and uh, Mrs. Robert McNamara on the other side. Here's the, the Ethiopian ambassador is sitting next to Miss um, Johnson. You, you recognize him? And um, let's see, let's go back. Earl Warren is on the far right of the picture, and this was the acting Secretary of State. Uh, you remember his name? He, he had been a professor at Yale Law School. Captain. Yeah, that's him. And here was uh, Lyndon Johnson giving the emperor the treatment. That's Manasseh Haile, uh, who was his translator at that time. Whoops. And there is the famous little dog, Lulu, who got a bum rap. A um, Polish journalist wrote a sort of mythological book about the emperor called The Emperor. Some of you may have read it, but according to that journalist, Haile Selassie had trained little Lulu, who was a male, to irrigate the shoes of any diplomats that Haile Selassie did not like. <laughs> I think that's pure myth. Uh, actually, the emperor brought Lulu. Uh, my wife taught painting at the Creative Arts Center at Haile Selassie University. She was next door to Ed and Joel Orser at the lab school. And uh, her students had a, a showing of their artwork, and the emperor came with Lulu. And Lulu behaved himself very well. So I think that's all myth about... Uh, what he was doing. When Secretary of State William Rogers came to visit Ethiopia a few years later, the emperor had two little dogs like Lulu at that time, and they both barked at uh, the Secretary of State. They didn't like him, but as far as I know, his shoes were clean. Here was the first uh, Nixon visit. In fact, that's Secretary of State Rogers behind the emperor.
walking down the corridor towards the Oval Office on the what I consider the back of the White House. There he's bidding bidding goodbye to Richard Nixon. There's Duke Ellington, who uh, played a concert in Addis Ababa. Uh, just a few weeks after the emperor visited Nixon, uh, the Nixons had a reception for all the African-American jazz artists that were famous at that time. They, they partied on till 4 a.m. So I'm sure it was a very good party. Duke Ellington was the anchor of that party. Here was the last visit. You can see the emperor's getting along in years here. He's not as spry looking as he was in those earlier photographs with Patricia Nixon and Richard Nixon. So a short time after that, the emperor was deposed in the so-called uh, Velvet Revolution. This is the picture that Americans, starting in 1984, the younger Americans had of Ethiopia when they heard the term Ethiopia. Such a sad time. And here was the emperor having been arrested at uh, the palace, being driven off in a Volkswagen uh, Beetle by the, the Derg. By the way, the uh, British historian Christopher Clapham wrote a, an excellent book about Ethiopia and about the government of Ethiopia during Haile Selassie's time. It was called Haile Selassie's Government, published in 1969. And Sahai Publishing out in uh, California asked me to do an afterward, tracing the events in the emperor's life from 1969 till his death which I just completed before I went on this trip. That should be out later in the year in a paperback edition, so I hope you can have a look at that to see more details about the emperor's arrest and uh, eventual death while under imprisonment uh, with the derg. Here is Mengistu Haile Mariam, who was the head of the successor government called the committee, the, the derg, which was a very dark period in Ethiopian history. It went on for about 17 years or so. Uh, military-led. He was not on many people's list of favorite heads of state. Castro came to visit him. He, he converted Ethiopia really into a communist country, so he was very much involved with the Eastern Bloc and the communist countries. There's Castro with a cigar in Addis Ababa. And anti-Americanism was very strong. By that time, the, the last Peace Corps volunteers, I think we were the last Americans to leave Ethiopia, official Americans. Uh, the Derg wanted all of them out as soon as possible. So I, I think 1976 may have been the last year the Peace Corps volunteers were still in Ethiopia. This is the current president. Uh, he was the civil war leader of the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, and he's been the de facto ruler ever since. So they've been in power 20 years now. And here is uh, Esaias, uh, the president of Eritrea, which made no bones about it. They just became a dictatorship. Ethiopia says they're a democracy. They, they have, have yet to prove their bona fides. The emperor had a uh, belated funeral. Uh, his remains were buried under an office constructed by Mengistu Haile Mariam, and according to one of the sources, uh, he built a latrine over the emperor's uh, remains. 
So after the dirt fell, the emperor's remains were dug up and temporarily placed in Menelik's tomb, which somehow reminds me of that old American joke, who's buried in Grant's tomb? So who's buried in Menelik's tomb? Highly Selassie was at the time. Then a few years later, they buried him in uh, the family crypt, a more appropriate place in one of the churches. These are some just uh, a gallery of pictures of the emperor. You can see the dignity and the uh, old growth of the man over a period of time with his famous black cape. That cape, by the way, and the artifacts, the the, uh, gifts of the American presidents to the emperor are in uh, a museum underneath what we used to call Jubilee Palace. They call it National Palace now. An Ethiopian army general has assured their safety. And that gentleman I was telling you about who brought Lucy to the U.S. and uh, the works of Afwork Techley, he's working on getting a display of that wonderful museum in the United States. It's not open to the public, so only on special occasion, if you know the right people, can you get down to see it. But it's a remarkable collection. They have uh, crowns going back to Tewodros, the emperor, and to Menelik as well as uh, the throne of Haile Selassie and all the artifacts associated with the royalty. So it's really a shame it's not available to be seen. So I'm hoping this will show up in the United States sometime in the next year. There's the military garb. You notice the row of uh, ribbons on his chest. I think he may have set a record for the most ribbons on the head of state. Some of which, I, I read a book about those, and some of which he designed himself. <laughs> some were authentic uh, gifts from foreign governments. That's one of the great pictures of all the uh, medals on the emperor. There he was in his uh, academic regalia. Oh, look, look at those rows. <laughs> And there is the Lion of Judah. That that was in the palace on uh, one of the chairs. And then just some Ethiopian people. You can see the great variety of people. This is uh, a lady from the western part of Ethiopia near Gambella. What's the name of the ethnic group in Gambella? Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is them. And uh, little donkeys are all around bringing delight. I tried to get one for my children, but no one would sell me one. They wanted them for their children. This is a uh, noted uh, Jewish uh, immigrant to the United States. He's on the faculty at Princeton. Uh, He's been with a group called the Shemagules, who try to mediate disputes between the the government and the opposition political parties. These are Afar girls, very colorful. are nomads with camels up in the eastern deserts of uh, Ethiopia. This is in uh, Asmara, which has one of the the finest architectural collections of art deco architecture in the world. This was uh, a bar and movie theater, I think, in Asmara. We had Peace Corps volunteers teaching up there so long as it was part of Ethiopia. This is um, a lady from the eastern part of Ethiopia, the Agadin, This is a Somalian uh, traveling home. They, they pick those up, the, the nomads, and take them with them. 
and typical scene that this is probably actually across the border in Somalia, but the eastern part of Ethiopia, the Agaden, is very similar to Somalian both people and looks. These are Somalis. I'm doing a course back in Tulsa on the Horn of Africa from the Queen of Sheba to Black Hawk Down. And uh, this will illustrate what the Somalis look like who are currently uh, giving the government of Somalia a hard time. The pirates are very much in the news. I think this is one of the pirates. <laughs> and that's a good one to close on. <laughs> okay. That will do it. Yeah, uh, his servants, one of his valets testified to this, that he saw the emperor the night before, and somehow the emperor knew that was going to be his last night. Uh, so he sort of prepared the servant, uh, leave me, I'm going to be taken care of tonight, something along those lines. The next morning, uh, when the, the valet went in, the emperor was dead on his bed, and there was a strong chemical Aroma. That this, this is part of what I've been writing about in this afterward. I would describe. Uh, it, it was from the um, memoirs of a member of the Derg, who apparently was either there or immediately in the vicinity when this happened. I had not seen these materials until about a month ago, when uh, an Ethiopian who lives up in Philadelphia published a new book about republicanism in Ethiopia, and he he had the full story, a couple of different versions of it, but uh, with citations of where you could find them to uh, read further. The emperor's physician said uh, he did not die from complications of prostate cancer, which is what the Derg announced was the cause of the death. So it's still a mystery. We, we don't know, but maybe if someday... Yeah, soon after that, the pitching of the vote, the that was when he was actually taken out of the palace. Yeah, right. They, they took him... It was almost a year later. He, he's, he was in a tent the first night, and then they moved him to, uh, what, what do we call the, the Chica houses, the, the uh, mud wattle houses that was a military officer's house in one of the palace grounds. That, that's where he spent. Did they take him to Menelik's castle in Toto? Yeah, the, the, the palace. It wasn't in Toto, but it was in that general direction. Did you spend time in Ethiopia? Yeah, yeah, I did. Oh, good, good. Yeah. And anything else? Yes, ma'am. Um, to, to the Chinese. Yes. Uh -huh. uh, Lyndon Johnson informed him that the U.S. was going to recognize the People's Republic of China. He, he sent Spiro Agnew over to inform the emperor. In fact, the emperor and the king of uh, Morocco were the only two heads of state so informed before the U.S. made that move. And the emperor sent, uh, received the message from Johnson, do what you need to do. So he almost immediately booked a flight to Peking and uh, made some agreements with the Chinese. So are they at that time by Chinese people? Today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the Chinese are a major force in Africa and in, Addis, in, in Ethiopia. They have several different projects going on. So maybe they better start teaching Mandarin as well as English in the schools there. Yes, sir? Right. This was one of the titles that the emperor modestly gave himself when he was crowned. He was using the 
Ethiopian Orthodox Church ideas and literature about the appropriate titles for an emperor, so he called himself Conquering Lion of the Tribe of Judah. And I was amused, some of his letters to Lyndon Johnson said, were signed Conquering Lion. So he, he, uh, he took on that title very seriously. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, they, they were very, very proud of that so-called Solomonic line going back to Solomon and Sheba. I'm not sure uh, any of the other kings took that as a, a title, you know, a coronation title. I, I don't remember Menelik being called Conquering Lion of the Tribe of Judah or Tewodros. But uh, informally, I'm sure they saw themselves that way. But Haile Selassie actually had that as part of his coronation ceremony, you know. We are making you king of kings, emperor of Ethiopia, conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. So that, that's, that's where the title in the book came from. Yeah, right. He, he, he had become emperor. The, he had shared power since 1916. He was the regent. And then uh, the uh, empress who was uh, ruling with him died unexpectedly. So he had a coronation ceremony that we had the picture of. And it was at that point that he took on the name Haile Selassie. His name previously had been Tafari Makonan, and he had the noble title Ross. So he was Ross Tafari Makonan. And guess where that name went? To the Caribbean. The Ross Tafarians picked up on that name and uh, have Haile Selassie deified. That, that's right, yeah. The, the, the priest uh, was in a long ceremony with holy oils and... Uh, chanting and all that. So I'm sure it was a very impressive ceremony. Incense. Thank you. Anything else? Yes, Steve. Well, Ted, I never thought I'd debate you on this very important point, but in Kapuczynski's book, which I agree is mythological, or <laughs> poetic, let's say. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> You're absolutely, absolutely right on the, the last point, but you can have a look at the book again, because I, I read it when I was doing this research, and oh, he, he, he perpetuates that story in the book. It's, it's probably in the same paragraph. Lulu and uh, his occupation with irrigation was the cause of big tips for waiters up in uh, Canada when the, the president had, the, the emperor had uh, Lulu with him. And whenever he uh, did something on the floor in the Canadian hotels, the, the staff would fight each other to get to see who would clean it up because they got huge tips as a result. In fact, Lulu got more press coverage in Canada than the Emperor did, I think. They were quite fascinated with him. Yes, sir. Yes, um, I actually uh, met the, uh, the Emperor. Mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of people uh, were affected by him that way. Howard University had given him an honorary degree in 1954. That was the first of many degrees. He went around sort of collecting honorary degrees thereafter in many American and other countries' universities. But he always had a close tie with Howard. They had set up at Howard, I'm sure you're familiar with this, what was called the Ethiopia Research Council in 1935, which made it its job to keep information about Ethiopia before the world public. I'm a member of their board in theory, although I don't do very much work for them, but they, they continue that service today, and it's headquartered at Howard University. Did you have a question, sir? Yeah, the, the emperor walked kind of a tightrope there, uh, being an ally of the United States and having that military base on Ethiopian territory, but he didn't want to offend the uh, neutralist bloc 
of nations. He, he tried to be a leader of the neutralist group, Tito and Nehru and people like that. Uh, so he, he risked unpopularity with the Arab countries, especially because of his presence of the United States there. Ultimately, he, he was always the friend of the United States because of the military ties I was talking about, but he, he had to be very careful in what he said and what he did because of the very reason you're bringing up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, the uh, 1960 was the beginning of the decade of Africa, and that's when mo- most of the colonial countries gained their freedom, if they hadn't already, from colonial powers. And then, then that's when what you're talking about became very, a very important part of the African landscape. Actually, worldwide landscape. Yes, ma'am. Gabe, did you want to say something? Yes. Uh, it's uh, oh several several hours drive. In fact, probably an overnight stay. It's up northeast of the capital, and it's very uh, an inhospitable countryside. It's a place that uh, you you can't get to easily. Are you thinking of going up and looking for? Uh, any of the early human uh, ancestors? That, that's where, that was where Lucy came from. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. Very dignified people uh, in that part of the country. I, I always love to see them come up with their camel caravans and bringing their goods up from the lowlands up to the highlands. We're always wearing... Yeah, they, they, they're in that whole area along the... Uh, Desert areas around there. Yeah. What? One more question. Yes, ma'am. I read somewhere in relation to. Yeah, yeah. That that was that was a kind of coincidence that uh, the decision was handed down just before he arrived. But bear in mind that that case had been argued oral argument before the Supreme Court the year before, so that the court had really postponed it. I've never heard that particular idea, but. It's, yeah, yeah, very intriguing thought. Uh, the emperor on that 1954 trip stopped in New Orleans, and uh, they they held celebrations in his behalf, which integrated New Orleans for the first time in its history. Some of my African-American friends who lived there at the time as students were saying it was the first time they'd ever seen the, the races together and having such a good time. So it was important in that uh, regard. Uh, Prince Sali Selassie and Princess Sibla, by the way, slipped out to see the French Quarter the last night in the city. They, they wanted to really get to know New Orleans. Did you have a quick question? <laughs> it it uh, was a. All of his visits were public relations successes of the first magnitude. He's remembered uh, all over the country wherever he appeared, uh, very fondly. Now, many of those people are getting along in years now, but. You see grand dames out in the small towns of America who went to a reception for Emperor Haile Selassie, and they've told their children about it, and they've told their children about it. So it made a great impression on uh, Americans at that time. The, the people that I talked to in Stillwater, Oklahoma, at what is now Oklahoma State University, commented on the state dinner for Haile Selassie there. They said it was the social event of Oklahoma history, which I think it was. So that same thing happened time after time throughout the country. 
both in big cities and small areas. Okay, I think we better end here. God bless.